Monday, July 25th. It's the Just Baseball Show. I'm Aram Layton. He is Peter Apple. And we have more Juan Soto trade rumors to open up with, but also a really, really good conversation with prospect in the Pirates organization, Taylor Davis, who is just the absolute man. It was just an awesome conversation to have. And uh, Peter, you had an awesome all-star weekend. We talked about that. But Mm -hmm. Juan Soto now feels like it's stealing the show. All-Star yeah. Weekend was a blast, but now I feel like the big topic is Juan Soto and where he's going. We got to kind of update the, the the just the negotiations, the topic. Where are we at now? I think this is the biggest story in sports right now. The fact that the, I mean, is he the best hitter in baseball? I think you can make that argument. I know he's, he hasn't performed like the best hitter in baseball, but you go around the league and say which hitter won at bat. It might be Juan Soto. I mean, you can make the argument, but I think a lot of people were putting him as the second best player in the sport after Mike Trout, who's now been injured. And it's always been feeling like Juan Soto has been the best pure hitter. Who would you say is a better pure hitter than Juan Soto kind of before we get into it? Because that's already a hot topic in itself. Best pure hitter. That's a great... I mean, dude, I know people will be like, oh, but the batting average. Juan Soto is not seeing anything remotely in the strike Ever. zone. And just look at the on-base percentage and just look at everything else. But, I mean, especially given the age and the controllability side of things, too, I he's got to be the most valuable young hitter in the game at this point. And in terms of best pure hitter, you could make a case for, gosh, maybe a Mookie Betts. And, yeah. and that's about it. But I but would, I would say still Juan argue Soto. Yeah, I'd say Juan Soto. I really would, unless we're missing somebody. You know I, I, who we're missing. Devers is is interesting too. Devers is interesting. The number one most hated just baseball post of all time is actually now working in our favor. The Freddie Freeman over Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is the number one first baseman moving <laughs> yeah. into this year. Is that the number one most hated post ever? <laughs> easily. Easily. The most duets, the most hate comments. People did not like that take at the beginning of the year. And now Freddie Freeman's hitting close to 330, and he hasn't gotten out basically in the past two weeks. Yeah. But back to Juan Soto, because we all know how good he is, 23 years old, looking to sign an extension, looking to get the biggest bag in baseball history. But this this situation with the Nationals is certainly souring. So we have some new front runners on possible trades. But I think at the end, we're going to come to a, the same conclusion because me and you have been talking back and forth on this. But what I think is interesting is that a new article came out on the New York Post, basically headlining that the San Diego Padres and the St. Louis Cardinals yeah. are the front runners to sa- or to trade for Juan Soto because the um, the Nationals 
they are they want those type of prospects that the Cardinals and the Padres have, especially the Cardinals and their big league talent, yep. like Dylan Carlson, Harrison exactly. Bader, Tyler O'Neill. Mm-hmm. They love Jordan Walker getting into the prospect size. Cool. Jordan Walker, Matthew Liberator, Mason Wynn, even Nolan Gorman. They have a lot of young talent that could go over to the Nationals, and the Cardinals could do it. I mean – but we've heard that they'd be they have been reluctant to trade some of their top prospects. But at the end of the day, it's Juan Soto. And that was, that was before we knew time. Juan Soto was available. Is is when exactly. the reports were. Yeah, they weren't willing to trade a, a top three prospect for maybe a Luis Castillo. Or I know that's an individual or a Frankie Montes. That seemed to be the idea. And even yes. we were like, uh, you should consider it. In this instance, just about anybody's got to be available. Jordan Walker is the one where I'm like, ah, but again, it's, oh, it's Juan freaking Soto. Juan Soto. Looking at the Cardinals situation, though, because it seems like the reports are that the Nationals want four, like, impact young players just to start with. That could be prospects. That could be guys at, at the big league level already. It's very rare that there's four elite prospects in a system. It's, it's just only a handful of systems, less than a handful, are going to have that. So if you're a team like the Cardinals that has – some big league talent, and then the elite prospects that you can kind of do a little bit of both. You don't deplete your major league team. You don't deplete the farm system totally, and you do a little bit of both. It sucks, obviously, that you're going to give up a lot of young talent, but you're able to still keep that farm system alive. Like the, It'll be depleted, but it'll be a lot better, and you're, you're not going to really lose sleep about plugging in a Juan Soto for any of Dylan Carlson, Harrison Bader, and even Tyler O'Neill. I don't think the Nationals would have as much interest in O'Neill. I'm curious. Maybe they would uh, to flip him again. I don't know, but I think they'd rather have a young guy with more control. But I'm looking at the Cardinals. They've got to be the perfect fit, right, in terms of the yeah. team that has the most capital, both prospect and, and player-wise at the big league level. I think the Padres are also right there. They're not as strong on the, at the big league level, but they have a really deep farm system too. I, I want to throw that over to you. Yeah. What type of prospects do you think that the Padres could send over? Because we know about Robert Hassel, but there are other that's, ones as well. That's the thing, man. He talk Hassel, and then we could say somebody like a CJ Abrams on top of that. Now, Abrams and Hassel headlining a package, That's you're, you're not getting much better than that. And then that's you could nice. talk about a story Ruiz, maybe a guy going over there has 61 stolen bases between the minor leagues and, and the big league so far this year. Um, of course, you could even float a Mackenzie Gore into that. And and look, I, I don't think that the Padres want to trade Gore, but he struggled a little bit for the Nationals. Who cares? You know, you know, he's a good arm, but for the Padres are trying to win now. The situation for both these teams, we know what the Padres answer is. And it's we want to win now. Always. We're trying to win now. That's A.J. Preller. For the Cardinals, what's amazing about the St. Louis Cardinals, I'm curious what your thought is on this, Peter, as we wrap this up, is what's amazing about the Cardinals is that they're always good. They never rebuild. They are always – and I think it's because of their commitment to keeping that organizational depth. We've seen them kind of go all in in certain spots, but it's more financially. They didn't give up any good prospects for Arenado. They just paid mm-hmm. for him, essentially. You know, Goldschmidt, they gave up some prospects, but it, it didn't break the system. This would be a stray from the norm for the Cardinals. And I know we say, but it's Juan Soto. So like, that's the answer to everything, but like really taking it in for a second here, is it worth kind of compromising that balance of always being good for the Cardinals? Probably yes. But are you kind of straying from what works to go all in on a Juan Soto here? If you're St. Louis, here's my thinking. Cardinals fans, I hope you internalize this because this is the trade that I kind of thought of, and I want to throw it at you too to th- if you think it might be too much, too little, because this is a lot. But I think this is what it will have to take because the Nationals said, they came out, 
They said, we're not negotiating. This is Juan Soto. We're not negotiating with you. Yeah. What we're going to do is we have our price and you're either going to match it or we're going to say goodbye. <laughs> I think that is what has taken the Mariners slightly out of it. Yep. Maybe yep. the Yankees and the Mets seem to be the front runners, not so much anymore. Here's the trade proposal because they want four to five, at least, you know, crazy good prospects or big league, young, controllable talent. Dylan Carlson. Jordan Walker, Matthew Libertor, and Mason Wynn for Juan Soto. I, I think that I thought it, I thought it was going to be worse. Honestly, I thought you were going to I thought you were going to I thought you were going to go even crazier. And Adam Wainwright and yeah and Yachty, Yachty except Arenado they eat and all the money. Yeah, Arenado and Goldschmidt too. No, honestly, man, like. That is exactly what I would imagine. Like, I would not go higher than that if I'm the Cardinals. Like, it, that even is is really difficult. And that I might love be Car- too much. It might I don't be. Know. It might be. But at the same time, Jordan Walker's a third baseman who's making his way up to the big leagues pretty soon. Arenado's not slowing down, man. If anything, he's playing some of the best baseball we've ever seen him play. Oh, I know he's put up some better numbers, quote unquote, at cores, but he's putting up ridiculous numbers now in, in St. Louis, and the defense has not slowed down at all. Walker, where is he going to play? Goldie hasn't slowed down at all either. It's one of those situations where if you're trying to win now, but even for the next couple of years, maybe you're okay with that. Carlson, look, I like him, but you're you're not batting an eye at swapping out Carlson for Soto, and they can move Bader to center. They can move exactly. O'Neal. They can keep O'Neal. They're fine. Uh, I think you do it. And I think from the Nationals' perspective, they might want a tad more because they're, they're outrageous right now. That's a franchise-altering package. You now get a top-10 prospect in baseball. You now get one of the more exciting, young, controllable outfielders in Dylan Carlson. You get a pitcher that can slot right into your rotation in the Libertor. And then you get a really exciting prospect in Mason Wynn. And for the Cardinals, their system's still okay. Like, their system is still fine after that. It's not nearly as good. It's still a solid system, and it's more than fine to, to keep you afloat for the future. I'm in, Peter. Here's my trade from the Padres. Mackenzie Gore, pitcher, <laughs> C.J. Abrams, James Wood, Robert Hassel, and you're probably going to have to throw in another guy. Yeah. Who's the fifth person that you would throw into that deal? Like a Ruiz. Asturi Ruiz? Yeah. So Asturi Ruiz would be the fifth person that I would throw in the Padres deal. That's also a ton. Which package would you rather have? The four from the Cardinals or those five from the Padres. It's, I mean, we're splitting hairs here because these are two of the biggest trade packages ever given. But I also want to remind you, this happened with Miguel Cabrera once. And you know very good and well. Thanks for that. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, but let's let's bring it up again because, I mean, the Marlins are cursed. We were talking about that. The Marlins are cursed, so maybe this wouldn't happen to the Nationals. But if we remember the two big prospects that came over when Miguel Cabrera was traded to the Tigers back in 2004, if I'm not mistaken, right? Six, 2006. 2006, okay. 2006 for Miguel Cabrera, who's kind of similar type timing as a Juan Soto, similar type age. Young, controllable, just proven. Cameron Mabin and Andrew Miller. Who were seventh and tenth in Baseball America's top 100 list. So that imagine like that's the equivalent of basically Abrams and Jordan Walker being packaged together. Like it's, it was the equivalent of that. Um, So it, and also it's different times now. It takes a little bit more to, to get a controllable piece, but even then that was like Abrams and Walker. That's crazy. 
Um, I, I really do feel like at the end of the day, it, it's risky from the prospect perspective. Of course it always is. And that's why I like the Cardinals package better. Dylan Carlson still, I think is, 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 has room to improve obviously, but he's proven to be good at the big league level. Uh, most of the other prospects I think are a little bit safer and Libertor is basically a big league ready guy, but at least you're getting a, a big league piece here. Um, I would probably prefer the Cardinals package, though the Padres package has some more upside, but James Woods so far away, you know, how long is that going to be? Hassel still in high A. Um, it, it's just a little bit different. Last thing I want to say on this too is the Padres would then be depleted. Like, I think they do it too. It's AJ Preller. So I think that was what the package would look like. Padres would be back to the worst, the worst system in baseball or close to it. Cardinals would still be closer to the middle of the pack. And and that's the thing. And again, that's not going to stop the Padres from doing it, but that just shows you why the Cardinals, maybe you should be willing to do it. It's uncharacteristic, but I'm kind of here for it. But at the end of the day, I still don't think he's going to get traded at the deadline. I don't because I truly, I think it's hard unless something crazy happens. And, you know, Preller's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm yeah. in. Fuck it. Like, let's yeah. ride, which is entirely. I mean, if you possible. get either of those offers, who's what, 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 what is going to be better than that? But are those offers going to be offered at the end no. of the day? That's my question. And I, think I don't think it's going to happen. I think the Nationals, you know, they have another shot to sign him. That That's a report, too, I, I, that they I'm have one more shot out. to do it. I'm not ruling that out. I'm not ruling out a 15-year, $525 million deal. I put that on my, out on my Twitter as like kind of a prediction. Just have a feeling after reading all these reports, after listening. Also, you guys, uh, for everyone listening, I, I, you know, don't want to shout out another podcast, but definitely you got to go listen to this episode. It's called The Show um, with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. They interviewed Scott Boris. Great yeah, yeah. interview. They talk all about the Juan Soto situation. The good guy to talk to about the situation. His agent. And after yeah. <laughs> hearing, yeah, after hearing that interview, I thought to myself, I just, because the learners who are the owners, they do not want to give away Juan Soto. I think they'd be willing to give him a 500 plus million dollar contract. They floated 440, which is still going to be the highest ever. Yeah. But I think they're going to up it and I will see what Soto says. Cause maybe Soto thinks with ever evolving markets, that he's worth over $600 million. Maybe they give him opt-outs. Maybe they can get creative. And here's the funny thing, too, is, is that the learners eventually, the, the reward is they want to sell. So why why worry about the contract if you're going to sell? I mean, the Marlins, we saw it. Jeffrey Gloria gave gave Stanton over $300 million, Then he sold the team. said, that's somebody else's problem. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it's harder to sell the team when your franchise piece is gone. Uh, and, and I feel like that would be a situation where I don't know how it works for, for people that want to buy the team. I would be less interested in buying the Washington Nationals <laughs> if Juan Soto has gone. And uh, so that I think that's an interesting wrinkle in it, too. The learners won't end up paying him that the rest of that contract. They'll probably sell the team before it, before that's up. They would probably sell the team. I think you're exactly right. And one last point to wrap up before we get into this interview. When A-Rod signed the biggest extension ever or the biggest contract ever, 10 years, 250 million back in the day, Kevin Brown at the time was the highest paid player in baseball. He's making around 50, which is hilarious, but he was really good for a little He was really good, but just like really good. Then he went to the Yankees and he had some blow up games and he was so annoying sometimes the Yankees, but that's another story. He was making around $15 million and A-Rod signed a contract 10 years, 250. So he's making 25 million a year. That's a 66% increase 
over the next highest paid player. If you think about it, Aram, Max Scherzer makes 43 million a year. So using that same logic, you could make the argument of a 66% increase over Max Scherzer on a yearly basis, which would be close to $70 million per year. And it's funny. It's even, it's hilarious to even talk about these numbers. I think Shohei is worth more. And he's, you know, his name's getting flown in trade talks. I have no idea if that's actually going to happen. No, apparently they, of the, course, the, the rumor mill is is going it, straight. But and the Angels were like, no, we're good. I yeah, think they like, like called teams. Shohei's called. pretty good. Shohei's yeah, pretty good. Yeah, because he does both. <laughs> but isn't that interesting? Like, if if we're going off the same markets that we've been going off of, and we know that it's going to increase time over time over time over time. He already did it with a rod. I'd love to numbers. see what I'd love to see what the graph looks like over the last like 40 years. Like if that was, a, if there was a point in time where there was like a bigger spike in the average salary, because a rod was kind of that first breakthrough deal Yeah, uh, where it was like, that was the first time we gave, we saw somebody kind of get that like mega contract. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if you're talking about Soto in the 50 mil, what is that? Like a 20, 25% upgrade from basically any other position player too. It's, it's, Definitely worth exploring. And also look at the NBA money. I mean, what Nikola Jokic has like a player option for 60 million in a couple of years. So it's not like it's it's this out of this world number that we, we're not seeing elsewhere. NBA money and baseball money have kind of been in tandem through the years. Everyone's baseball money was always ahead of it to a degree. So, I mean, I don't think it's crazy to say that we could have a $60 million guy. Why can't it be Juan Soto at the back of his contract eventually? At the end of the day, NBA players like Russell Westbrook's making 47 million. It no matter what you think about the money that's being thrown around right now, Russell Westbrook is making 47 million dollars. Yeah. That's all I have to say. And at the end of the day, Arm, baseball players play 162 games. Yeah. NBA players play 82. NFL players, Patrick Holmes is making 50 million dollars a year to play 16 games. 16. So when you really look at how many times they're on the field and how many events they're taking place in. Baseball players are not getting as paid as much per game as some of the athletes in other sports too. So So hopefully that amount of money makes it make a little bit more sense that on a per game basis, baseball players still aren't making nearly as much as NBA players. Like Nicole Jokic is is about to make a million dollars a game. Imagine Juan Soto making $162 million (laughs) a year. I mean, it's just, and it's, you know, it's, it's crazy. And we're going to continue to cover it here on the just baseball show. Um, But before we get into the interview, remember, I'm giving out this Corey Seager home run derby ball that I caught. Man, I'm going to – it's tough to see it go. It's such a beautiful baseball. (laughs) It smells so good. It smells so fresh and good. And it has a home run derby on it. Look at that. It looks like it didn't even get touched. It looks like it didn't even get touched. There's a slight mark right here, if you can see it, but like barely. I mean, it's a new baseball. Yeah, It was a new baseball they hit one time. Hit one time in the stands, and it didn't, didn't hit anything else. Hit your Actually, glove, right? it, it hit uh, it hit some beer though. A beer oh, like exploded in the stands. <laughs> I didn't even get wet though. I was I was chilling, but next to me, you know, I, I had to get the ball. Yeah, you got to do what you got to do, man. <laughs> and uh, so this interview, real quick, with Taylor Davis, also so awesome. He actually ta- hung out with us for like an hour after we recorded, giving his thoughts on the whole Juan Soto deal. So I'm sure he'll be pumped that this was the intro for it. But a guy that's seen time in the big leagues has been up and down, saw his first big league action in 2017 with the Cubs, got back up in 18 for a couple games, got back up in 19, and then 
even saw a couple games in 2021. He's a catcher that, you know, just continues to battle through the minors and get those opportunities. But one of the funniest, coolest dudes, really insightful and, and just a really interesting wealth of knowledge while just also being a fun guy that you could tell why people love playing with him. Uh, and you could tell why Jack gravitated towards him in uh, Indianapolis with the Indians. So I think you'll really enjoy this interview with Taylor Davis, triple a catcher with the Indianapolis Indians. We'll cut to it right now. Taylor Davis is joining us now, catcher for the uh, Indianapolis Indians, my Indianapolis Indians. <laughs> I've had uh, some great interactions with Taylor and uh, listen, he has been a fan of the show uh, he said, let's hop on the show. And I said, absolutely, dude, this is this is invaluable. Let's get it rolling. Uh, Taylor, four day all star break, like we were just talking about uh, before we started recording. How many hours of sleep you get per night with a two year old at home? Yeah. Uh, how long are these games? Um, no, <laughs> you know, I've been getting some decent sleep. My wife is a saint uh, and, and she handles most of that for me. Um, but yeah, it's uh, I, I didn't get to hibernate like most of these guys did. <laughs> it yeah. seemed like most of the guys just fully unplugged for four days, right? as far as the guys I knew. So, I mean, most of them are younger. Most of them are able to just either go travel or just, you know, legitimately hibernate, like you said. Uh, for you, it's almost like catching up with the family and, and making up for some of the, the busy time that you have, right? And I mean, how was that? And, and, and we talked about it before we started recording. An extra day, I believe, on, on the All-Star break. So uh, how was that whole uh, you know, time off for you? Yeah, no, it was great. Um, it, was, it was awesome. And honestly, we actually even had – we got rained out Sunday before the break, and we were in Columbus. So I got home at 5.30 p.m. on Sunday to start my All-Star break. So that was, that was pretty nice. Um, but uh, that was a, you know, a great way to, to start the break, that's for sure. Uh, did the zoo one day. <laughs> um, the four, I'll be honest with you though. I, I'm I, the four day break was a little long. I don't, yeah. it, it felt odd. Um, I don't know that I really minded. Like, I'm not going to complain about an extra day off, but, um, it, it wasn't, I'm so used to the three days. I'm just so, it's just so standard. You have the all-star break and the two days in the only two days of the 365 with no sports. So, you know, I don't know. I, it's crazy. Well, you've had time to build up that regimen, too. It becomes muscle memory. 11 minor league seasons, parts of four major league seasons. Uh, we're going to play a game at the end. I teased to you. I'm still not going to tell you what the game is until we get to it. But, um, you know, you have been through every stop of professional baseball. You've been in the Dominican Winter League. You've been from, you know, the Cape to the Complex to AAA to the bigs here. Um, I, I guess my first question for you is starting at the very top, and then we'll get into you know, what's happened in your minor league career. But at the very top, when did you make your major league debut? Was that, uh, was that 2017 you made your big yep. league debut? Did you cry? Yeah, I actually got, uh, no, I, I, uh, I cried, I think when I called my parents. Well, I actually, I don't think I did cry when I called my parents because I was so mad at them because like, I didn't want to call, I didn't want to tell one before the other. So like, I think I called my dad like two or three times. He didn't answer. And I called my mom. I was like, hey, where's dad? Tell him to call me and uh finally got a hold of them but at that point like the emotion of like telling them was was gone um no it was that honestly like I tell people all the time like yeah it was great I'm so excited um to be able to say for the rest of my life that I'm a major leaguer but like to make that phone call to my wife and my parents like and for my son to be able to say that I was a major leaguer that's what I played for that's what I did for um the memories that I make along the way like 
it definitely unforgettable. And funny thing, it's kind of full circle at this point, but I got called up the first time in Pittsburgh. I didn't make my debut there, but the first time I walked on a major league field with a major league uniform was in Pittsburgh. So that's kind of cool. Can you describe kind of like, I guess what, what the difference is when you're taking the field for a major league, obviously there's some very obvious differences, but what you're feeling internally, because that's the one thing that, that none of us will, will really ever be able to, to understand and, and be able to feel or even just try to pretend we can is what's the difference walking out between the lines of a major league baseball game versus, you know, a minor league game that, that you were doing time and time and time again, you know, what, what difference was that for you when you finally got to get out there and play the same sport, play the same game, do the same things, but just in a totally different setting and situation. No doubt. Um, you know, I think one big thing, and I think uh, this was a really cool part about me coming up, Uh, when I did in 2017 with the Cubs, when they were still winning, um, you, you know, the big leagues is all about winning. There's nothing else that matters except for winning in the major leagues, like in the minor leagues, there's other stuff that matters. Um, that, you know, the minor league teams are still trying to make money. So you're still doing random things that are throwing off the game. Um, (laughs) everybody is, everybody is trying to get to the next level in the minor leagues. Everybody is trying to get to the next level, no matter what level you're at. In the big leagues, there is no next level. There's Mike Trout, right? So nobody at that point is trying to go anywhere else. Everybody is just trying to do everything they can to win. And that's not saying that, that guys aren't competing or trying to win in the minor leagues by any means. Um, but I think there's a subconscious click there that, okay, like, let's focus. Like, this is all that it's about. Um, and I, I would say that's probably the biggest difference. Um, and, and there is significant pressure that comes with that, um, because the only thing that matters is winning. So if you have a great day and you don't win, that was an unsuccessful day for the organization. Um, you know, so, but at the same point, if you have a very unsuccessful day personally, but you win, it's a great day for the organization. Um, I tell guys all the time, and I think the guys in somebody said, somebody made this comment, um, in Chicago, like when the re because you know, I, when I first got to Chicago or when I was first signed, it was 2011. So like they were in the midst of this bad streak and it went for, you know, fine that 400 loss seasons in a row. Something like that. It was bad, right? They were, that was Tony Campana really and company. Yeah. <laughs> Tony Campana, university of Cincinnati. <laughs> um, he, but yeah. So like I saw the shift from that to world series champion in 16 and it was really cool to see. But one thing that the, the organization bought in on was figure out a way that you can help the major league team win today. Yeah. For a lot of guys, for a lot of players that was doing everything that you needed to do that day to make sure you succeeded and helps your team win. Because if you didn't get hurt, if you didn't have to come out of the game early, if you were able to do all that, they didn't have to send a player from another um, level to you to totally screw up rosters and hurt somebody's playing time, yada, yada, yada. Right. So like they're very simple goals, but I think that bought, that got bought in and that happens when teams start succeeding and um, things start going the right way, you know, like it's a really fun thing to be a part of. So I, I almost visualize it as a funnel that is turning into more of a cylinder here because at, at the major league level, like what you're saying, the only goal is to win the baseball game. And, and there might be more of that team environment. And I, I know that there's still a team environment 
A, in minor league baseball, B, in college baseball, even when you get out to the Cape, you know, there's some pride in being a Katuit Ketelier or a Brewster Whitecap here, but oh, yeah. everybody's out there for themselves. I mean, like, it, it is an individual thing. It is based on individual performance. So if you've got a guy in low A that went four for five with two pumps, but you lose eight five, you're taking okay that every day. That of the week. Guy. He just yeah. had a great day. Um, you see it a little bit more in high school and we just saw a first round pick opt out of a high school season. Um, do you feel like baseball is getting a little bit more individualized under major league baseball? Is that like what everybody craves to have that team environment at the tippy top right now? I don't know. I do think that um, it has become more individualized at the lower at, at the amateur levels, no doubt. Um, I think in the minor leagues, like, in that scenario that you brought up, you know, you guys lose eight to five, everybody could have done a lot of things the right way. Your pitchers could have all thrown the ball really well with a couple errors here or there, or a couple bad things that went your way. Maybe a couple guys made some adjustments that were really positive and ergo the entire day is a win for the team. Um, whereas in the big leagues, guys make huge strides. Some great balls are put in play. You lose 10, nine and a 19th. Yeah. You lose 10, nine and a 19th. Yeah. Um, it was an unsuccessful day. Um, and I think that um, that's a cool and a not cool thing, you know. Yes. Um, but I think that you're absolutely right that that starts at the at the amateur levels. And it, it's why, like, you know, creating these environments, these competitive environments uh, as a team uh, is an important thing to do at the younger ages, because when you get to these points, it's about getting to the major leagues. You know, yes. at some point it's no longer about winning as a kid. It's about getting to the big leagues. And then when you get back to the big leagues, now it's back to winning. Right. It's full yeah. circle. It, it really is full circle. And I was going to ask you that specifically just on how you balance that yourself as a guy that's, you know, been up and down from the big leagues to, to, to AAA on several occasions where how do you balance the idea of, okay, I just need to stay within myself and, and, you know, try to play a team's game, but at the same time, not press too much to try to get yourself back up to the big leagues? Like, how do you not chase those individual results when, you know, you can just tell from talking to you that you're, you're a team guy, especially as a catcher, you know, how do you balance that? Uh, so one thing, and I, this is going to be a strange transition here, but let me start with by saying one of the things that I feel is the most different about our, my job, uh, my nine to five than most people's nine to five is the communication. Most people, uh, that have a job, have an understanding of what it takes to get promoted, get demoted, get fired, get hired. I have no idea any of those things. And I'm not saying there's not a reason for that. I somewhat understand that you can't tell a kid that if you hit 300 with 30, you're going to be in the big leagues because that just might not be the case. Yeah. And, and I, I understand that. Um, so because of that, I understand that I really don't, have an understanding of what the current situation of the team needs and the current needs of that general manager. Therefore, I have to totally rely on the fact that I know that I'm doing everything I can that day to help the team win and get to the big leagues. And if I can do both of those things and have fun, because I've always said the one thing I told Jack, the one thing that I've told my wife, everybody is that I like, first and foremost, it's about having fun. Yes. And I, a lot of people say, I, I want to like, if, uh, you know, if I don't enjoy playing this game, there's too many people that would want to do it. Yada, yada, yada. I, I don't really believe that. I think that we are a special group of athletes yes. at this level. Now, let me also state that I 
am the I self-proclaimed most athletic, unathletic person you'll ever meet. No, dude, I've seen that leg kick. You're a freak. See, I'm telling you, but it's see, it's sneaky athletic in an unathletic body. Is what <laughs> well, um, t- tailgate athlete within 30 yards. <laughs> um, but I, but what I mean by that is that I do think that, like, sure, a bunch of people would want to play, but I do think that there is this is a high level of talent that it takes to get here oh, and yeah. get to the next level. But what I do think is that there are a lot more people that would have fun doing it. There's a bunch of people in independent baseball that would have fun being where I'm at. So if I'm not going to have fun doing it, I want somebody else to have fun doing it. That was going to be the one. Oh, sorry. Sorry to cut you off. That was just going to be the one thing that I was going to ask you was uh, because, you know, the grind to climb up the minor leagues is is brutal. And I mean, Jack and I have talked to so many different players that have gone through it. There's awesome experiences along the way. Like, uh, and then there's obviously some challenging spots, but once you get to triple, it's a different level, right? I mean, the stadiums are nicer. The crowds are bigger. Obviously making a little bit more money. I will still maintain that it's not nearly enough, but it's a little bit more and you can start to kind of figure out and you're also, you know, knocking on the doorstep of, of the, the big leagues. How much more enjoyable is it playing in, in AAA? I get to see Indy, you know, with, with what Jack's experiencing. I mean, that's a, that's a really cool environment. Um, how much cooler is it and more enjoyable at AAA? And do you almost feel like it's its its, its own career in itself, you know, given just how much bigger it is at that level? No doubt. Uh, the cities are definitely, I, in my opinion, the cities are, are cooler for the most part. Uh, uh, stadiums yeah. are better, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, let's say this. The cities are more notable. Whether they're uh-huh. better or not, I'll let somebody else be the judge. Um, but – yeah, I mean, I you know, I have said for a long time, I, I would play, I would do this for, for till I was 50. I don't, you know, if somebody would let me do this for as long as I could, I would. Um, I think that one thing I'll tell you is that I really believe that the housing thing, the housing getting paid for for minor leaguers is an absolute game changer for oh, yeah. multiple reasons and really financially is the least of them, but they, it, it helped the player the most there was so much stress incurred on us to try to find housing that one thing I there's me going off on tangent again. One thing that Joe Madden said that I loved was like his whole concept of, of managing was that he wanted to take care of everything off the field so that everything he wanted to make sure that everything was taken care of off the field. So off the field in Chicago, we had any resource you needed because the only goal was to get on the field and win. Right. And so like, I will happily take that. But one of the things that they started asking about in a project that they actually worked on a few years ago, like they had asked me about it. They said, Hey, what's the most stressful thing for a, for a player? And I said, without question, it's housing. And I was just telling Jack, it's, it's the signing the leases and having to break the lease. If you need to leave, it was just, it was really difficult to do all that. So like the stress of doing that and doing it in three days before a season starts. Um, So the taking that away, I think is going to make baseball in general, minor league baseball in general, way more enjoyable for a lot more people. They're not thinking that they can't pay their rent at home because they have to pay rent on the road. They can now make sure that everything's okay. Um, But no doubt is it a game changer to be in these cities with these stadiums. Um, The capability to pretty much walk to every stadium. You're not paying for Ubers to get places. You're not waiting on the team bus for a lot of places. You know, you're able to walk to lunch. Um, you know, it's, it's really nice. Have a normal day somewhat. 
So Taylor Davis, 711 minor league games. You have to have a horror story, a travel horror story with minor league baseball. I've got one and I have been in it since 2019. So I am an infant um, compared to 711 minor league games. What's your minor league travel horror story? Man, I've got a, I've got a few minor league horror stories. Um, (laughs) Travel story. We had, so (laughs) in Indy this year, Oh yeah. We had, this is probably, honestly, this is probably up there at this point. We had a bus breakdown. Uh, we had a, I think it was a four hour or maybe a nine hour drive home that turned into an 18 hour drive home. The bus broke down. One of the bus waited, buses waited for us. We got fixed, got to the other bus and broke down again. Then everybody had to get on one bus. That was a mess, but I don't know if you know this part. I think I told you this, but the next road trip, we bust again. That same bus, that same bus driver broke down. No. Again. No, dude. You didn't you can't make that. it up. Oh. You can't make it up. It's it happened. It's pretty unbelievable. It, I was on it. I was I gotta I gotta admit, I don't want to say there's a common denominator here because <laughs> there were a bunch of us on both. All right, but good lord, that was some bad luck. Did they retire the bus? Dude, they, they fixed it, and he actually made it home. One person got on the bus. One person. <laughs> so he came and met us. Like a few hours later, we pulled off or something, and they were like, hey, the bus is actually going to be here if anybody wants to get on it. <laughs> I laughed at him. Come on. You are out of your mind if you think I'm getting back on that bus. <laughs> and sure enough, one guy, one guy got on. Oh, dude. All right. So you are the self-proclaimed mayor of Des Moines, Iowa. You were in Iowa 2015, 16, 17, 18, and 19. Take me behind the mayor of Des Moines story here. Uh, well, let me start with, I have one, I have one, uh, <laughs> I have one record for the Iowa Cubs. And I said, you know, in my fifth year, I was like, all right, I, I got to be coming on something. I don't know what I've got to have some record, like most days on the roster, anything. So I asked, I asked the, the PR person and she came back. She was holding a piece of paper and she was laughing. She's like, yeah, yeah, you actually do. You're right. And you're like more than double the next guy. It's like sick. What do we got? Grounded into double plays. Not sick. Oh. Um, so the mayor of Des Moines. So after my, after my third year in Des Moines, I made a comment to somebody that I should be getting my letterman's jacket. And so that off season, uh, the off season, that would have been what the off season of 17, somebody mailed me a varsity letter, an Iowa varsity letter and a certificate. So when I came back for my fourth year, I was like, well, I'm back for my fourth year. I guess I should just run for mayor. Yeah. And somebody said something long story short, I ended up like doing some research and I actually considered running for mayor. I had an apart, I had an apartment there. I had a residence there. Um, I could have gotten an ID there. The only reason I didn't do it was because the taxes in, in Iowa are really bad. And I, I told Jack, I, I'll do a lot of stuff for a joke. I, I you know, I'll, I'll do stuff to be funny, but I'm not going to pay. I'm not going to pay anybody. To yeah. <laughs> so on that topic, um, you haven't stolen a base since 2016, which is when Jack and I graduated from high school. Yeah. So it, it, it's been a while. You haven't tried since 2018. Just out of out of the blue here, I just have a question: Is 
will you try this year? And, and can you give the just baseball show a stolen base? And, and if so, um, I think that would be the greatest gift in the history of just baseball. Yeah. I might have to try just for Mike Roberts. I yeah. will. Yeah. I will and in honor of Mike Roberts. In an honor of the great Mike Roberts, I, I may have to do it. We've actually had conversations about it this year with my first base coach because of Mike Roberts, because everybody loves him so much. And he goes, dude, do you understand how excited he would be if you stole a base? Do you know what would go through his mind if you stole it? So it may, it may have to happen. So for context, for those listening, Mike, Mike Roberts is – I mean, long time manager, father of Brian Roberts, who I'm sure most of the people listening to this podcast will remember all-star you know, second baseman for the Baltimore Orioles and then the Yankees for a cup of coffee, but we pretend that never happened. Um, but the, the best thing about Mike Roberts is, you know, college coach, but then on the Cape was, was, you know, is still a legend there. I'm going to go see him in about an hour or two after we finish this interview, but also was base running an advisor for the Chicago Cubs for a while now with the Pittsburgh Pirates. So you got to know him really well with the Chicago Cubs. His number one thing is base running. And I've had a few friends go through the Katua Ketaliers and, you know, their first week there, they're like, dude, I'm freaking base running on the cave. This is not what I came here to do. I came here to hit bombs, not base run. Um, And I knew they were super pissed, but by the end of the summer, they loved Mike Roberts. I'm going to go tell him as well that I asked you to steal a base. So now I'm going to get him on this too. And you're going to have no choice but to try to bolt because, like, that's his thing. The the bigger issue here is I don't know who's going to hit for me. So I got to get on first base before I can steal. Unless unless I finish the year in – what was it the Atlantic League that you're able to steal first? I think so. Wait, what? Yeah. Yeah, I think last year. I don't think they're still doing it. But any ball ball that was dropped, you were able to try to run to first base. And he could throw you out. But if, I mean, if I've said this in the past, what if you're in, so see, this is a, this is a winning big league question. Game seven of the world series, you got uh, Terrence Gore's hitting. Yes. There's a ball that there's a guy on third base. There's a ball that he knows is going to be over everybody's head. Swing. Two strikes, swing and go. Yep. I've thought about that. Absolutely. Swing and go. So like, hundred percent. So like, this is basically the legal form of that. Yeah. I'm in, man. Um, Hey, I want to ask you about the, the mentorship side of this Um, because, you know, obviously you've been around, you've seen so much young talent. We've talked about the friendship that you formed with Adley Rutschman. I think about a lot of the young catchers with the pirates. I think about a lot of the young catchers with the Cubs when you were coming up, how big of a deal to you is the mentorship aspect to minor league baseball, taking these guys under their wing or under your wing and just teaching them like anything you possibly can. And, you know, picking up some of that, that youthful energy and you still have plenty of youth. You are exuberant with youth, but uh, just picking up some of that, you know, like newfound love for the game from a guy like Adley or a guy like Henry Davis, but also giving them some advice that they probably couldn't get from anybody that they have met on these stops. Uh, You know, very similar to something that we talked about before I got on the show, but just trying to give them a different perspective, um, give them a, a different way of thinking, um, maybe somewhere that, um, you know, I, I had been places that, that some of these guys haven't been yet. Shoot. There's guys in this team that I've been in triple a, uh, longer than they've been in pro ball. Yeah. You know, so, um, I think that, uh, you know, some of that comes into play. Um, just the, I, I really, I enjoy that part of it. I really like, just trying to help people in general, um, help make people better. And 
you know, something that, you know, early in my career, there was, I didn't play a ton early in my minor league career. And something that I've come to realize is that I, I always wanted to be a good teammate. For some reason, I, the first time I found out I wasn't going to be playing very much, I called my parents. And the first thing I told my parents is, you know what, if I'm going to be here, I'm going to be the best teammate I can possibly be. Yeah. And what I came to find out was like, that was my way of competing was, was I couldn't play, but I'm still a competitor. So how do you compete? Well, you go out there and you can compete with yourself and you try to be the best human being that you can be. And I think that that um, kind of started this trend of like making the game fun for me, like enjoy being in the field. You're going to be at the field a lot. You're going to be there a long time. Um, you're going to travel a lot. You're going to go to a lot of hotels, figure out a way to make it fun or, or it's going to be miserable. Right. Yeah. So I, I think that whole kind of thing can be said. And so I really enjoy the fact that, that some people will sit and listen to what I have to say and um, take my opinions um, and, and do what they want with them. But um, I think that's part of it is probably more so just that I enjoy it uh, yeah. than anything else. What was interesting for me is, is you talk about not playing a lot in the beginning of your minor league career and, and it makes it really hard to kind of get those reps and develop and, and try to break through is, and I know, hitting's kind of secondary for catchers. We always talk about that. And um, it, it, there's just so much responsibility that goes into just being behind the dish and calling a game and all of the things that go with that. But at the same time, you still have to hit the baseball and you really had a breakthrough offensively in, in 2014, which is interesting because you, you talk about not getting a ton of reps and then you go up to the double a level and in 53 games, you hit 319, 375, 500, which was in 150 plate appearances. Like that's a pretty good sample size. What kind of clicked for you there? Because generally guys have figure something out in high A and then they get slapped in the face and double because it's just a different level for you. It was like, you got up to double and then you figured something out there. It seemed like, and then, you know, parlayed that into a nice triple A season and you, you haven't really looked back since. Was there something tangible that happened there or was it a mindset? Was it a swing adjustment? What kind of clicked for you in 2014? Uh, you know, I, I think I, 2014, I really keyed in on um, one of the things the hitting coach at the time, Desi Wilson, kind of helped me focus on was coming up the bench. Pretty much all my bats were off the bench. And so when I would come off the bench, his big thing, basically his big message was swing. You know, like I would rather you swing at a ball in the dirt than take a fastball for a strike. So I started to do that more often, um, kind of went back to who I was a little bit, I think also just mentally. But honestly, I think 15 was where I kind of turned the corner and I just had a more consistent approach. Um, I think 14, I had a good year. I had put some good at bats together, but still like I, I, I understood, you know, it's still only 150 at bats. And honestly, in 15 spring training, somebody got hurt like right at the end of camp or I probably wouldn't have even gone to AAA to start the year. Um, but no, I, I really don't think it was anything more than like maybe understanding the fastball was such a big deal. You know, you get to double A at that time, you got to double A and the fastballs, that was where the fastballs really kind of came at you. Yeah. Um, you know, there, I always said there's no, there were no bad players in double A. There were guys in A ball that I would look at that might not have been bad, but that I would have said, I don't know really. I, I don't know necessarily that you should have been here. When yep. you get to double A, there's nobody that's like that. Right. And then you get to triple A and there's no holes in the line. Yeah. So, you know, and now, now these, it's, these teams are stacked. I mean, the pitching staffs are huge. The, the teams, you know, COVID changed that though, because there were, there was a two groups of players, right? There was a group of players that should have developed to another level. And there was a group of players with an age gap that they needed to be at the next level. And so all these teams have this just like gluttony of players that are like 
two and a half a that need to be in like double a plus yep. yeah um and so all these teams just are just loaded and i mean it's fun to see but it's just crazy i mean these you're in you but the only thing that stinks is like you're not getting to see relievers you're you're seeing pitchers aren't throwing quite as many innings because the staffs are so much bigger but two-parter first part's a yes or no second part i want you to get a little bit more in depth uh the yes or no question with obviously that that covid year throwing a wrinkle in everybody and also just the sheer data and um you know like clinics and the drive lines of the world and the Cressies of the world. Like they have made, I feel like they've made the overall talent level in baseball as high as it's ever been. Do you feel like baseball is more talented? The players are more talented than they've ever been before right now. For sure. But I think that just athletes in general are more talented than they've been in the world. And I think I always point, I always point to college basketball and look at how many mid majors are really good in college basketball right now. I don't think that's because mid-majors are recruiting any different. I think it's because there's that many more athletes um, that are, that are that talented. The, the, you know, the big thing I'll say about like the drive lines, the treads, I think treads are really cool. I haven't done a ton of research into it, but I I do believe in pitch design. I think that's a big deal. Oh yeah. Driveline. I I don't necessarily know if I agree or disagree with um, their practices, but what I do agree with is that in any industry, in my opinion, you have to question the norm to, to grow. Mm-hmm. Whether it's right or wrong, you have to question it. And nobody had really questioned the norm. And he did that. And he questioned the norm. And we've grown because of it. I don't know that his data or his research has, has helped. But I do know that him just starting the process, Kyle Bodie just doing this, has changed the game. Um, and yes, I think that people are more talented right now. I don't think the game is better right now than it's been. Yeah. Um, I think that I think that the talent level is probably as good as as it's been in a long time. Yeah. One of those guys you saw in 2020, and uh, I know Aram loves him. I know that the rest of baseball <clears throat> is in awe of what he's done at double and triple this year. Said you spent 2020 uh, at Baltimore's alternate site with a guy named Gunnar Henderson. How good can Gunner be? Gunner, Gunner can can has a chance to be a really special player. Um, and you know, I've told you in the past that I think Adley is one of the most talented human beings I've ever been around. Um, the the whole the whole package for me, right behind the plate, at the plate, strength, speed, the mind, the person uh, he he does it. The cool thing that I saw with Gunner Henderson was when he was at the alt site in 2020, he came a little bit later. I believe he was 19. Um, I think he was the second round pick in, was he the second round pick in 19? Was he the second round pick in 2019? I think so. 19. I so, believe. so I think he was 19 years old in 2020 at the alt site. And I think he had played at like a low, I think he had played at low A in 2019. And so he shows up and at Bowie as he would be what a, a college sophomore. It'd be yeah. his college sophomore fall where he probably wouldn't have played his freshman year. And he shows up and he's facing major leaguers. He's facing Grayson Rodriguez. He's facing DL Hall. He's facing uh, Eric Hanhold. He's facing a bunch of uh, good arms. He's facing a bunch of guys that pitched in the big leagues that year for Baltimore and had pitched previously and this year for others. And for like two weeks, I sat with Ryan Fuller and watched him um, battle. I mean, he grinded and he was getting frustrated. And I looked at him. I looked at me and Ryan. We're like talking about it. And I was like, we're going to see something out of him. We're going to figure out who Gunnar Henderson is. And 
Gunnar Henderson became Gunnar Henderson in those next two weeks. And I tell everybody that like you saw him in the next, well, actually it was probably closer to six weeks become a man. Like he started dominating those guys at the alt site as this 19 year old kid, you know, and he already had the size. You could already see that the, the frame was built to, to be a big time player. I'll tell you the surprising aspect, not that he didn't have good plate discipline, but like the strikeout to walk stuff is, is just, that blows my mind. I saw that from Adley. I think Adley's got a chance to yeah. walk as much as he strikes out. Yeah. I didn't think that Gunner would. I thought that Gunner would, would be relatively average probably there on both, but good Lord, man. He's got a chance to be really special also. There's some guy. I mean, that whole that's, that's a really good system. Oh, my gosh, is it a good system? We were talking about that because they could really pull off a trade for anybody. And, and you know, we know there's there's a big sweepstakes right now. And if they wanted to do it, they probably could. I don't think they should because I think all of these guys could be legitimate, you know, lineup pieces for them uh, for the foreseeable future. But you talk about the walks and strikeouts. It really stands out to me with, with Gunners, the swing decisions there. And also, he just seems to have, like, found what works for him. Um, and just repeats his swing as well as any young player I've seen, you know, in the minor leagues. But but going into the, the alternate training site thing, a lot of people say similar things about Michael Harris and his experience there. Another high school guy who was thrown into the ringer there that kind of said, you know, sink or swim, see how it goes. And he really impressed people at the alternate training site. We're looking at Michael Harris, you know, basically mashing at the big league level. And it seems like that might have been a similar story there where he became a man and it, it kind of allowed him to just not be afraid of of another experience of, of, of playing at the highest level, even though you might have some of that like question of whether you belong, you feel like the alternate training side out of something bad. Cause obviously 2020 was horrible in a lot of ways. Uh, but even on the baseball side too, do you feel like the alternate training site was like a weird silver lining out of it? Because it seemed like for the players that were able to go there, it, it, it was, it was a sink or swim, but for the guys who swim could be career defining type of moments. The, you know, I said when I heard that that's what was happening, when I heard when we found out that the alternate site was going to be there, I initially was kind of scared because I thought the alternate site could work. And I didn't know what that meant for minor league baseball, because if the alt site works, that could totally change how the game works. And, you know, then you looked at, we did it again in 2021, right? Like we went in May guys were ready. And that was the point of the outside guys were ready. You got somebody hurt. Somebody was ready to play in the big league. Um, but no doubt did it immediately throw you in this competitive atmosphere where you could also develop. Um, you were around really good coaches with really good players. So you were able to develop and you found out who you were. Um, you got to compete. Like you found out if you were ready or not. Um, and it told you because you were getting six F at today. And if you were pitching that day, you were throwing your 30 pitches or your three innings. It didn't matter um, what happened, you know? So, um, yeah, it was – I didn't mind it, you know? I thought um, it was okay. I, I, I don't think I, you could do it for a whole season. I think it would be too monotonous, but um, it, was, it was okay for a month. Yeah, and you start to pick up on, you know, certain pitchers' cues and things like that, and then it just becomes a, a battle of trying to figure each other out as quickly as possible, right? No doubt. And, like, that's already a battle. You know, facing your facing your friends for me is always tough because you always think they know something about you, so they're going to pitch you different. They always think, man, they know something about me. We're going to do something different at the plate. In all reality, 98% of the time, the right-handed pitcher is going to see you as the right-handed hitter, and the right-handed hitter is going to see you as the right-handed pitcher. It is no different than anything else. You need to prepare accordingly and not act like they're your friends and they know all your ins and outs. 
Yeah. Uh, something that we've talked about before, before we had you on the pod was how much you just love baseball in general. And, uh, you know, crazy. I know, right. A, a professional baseball player loving baseball, but you know, you've told me some some screenshots that you have of tweets about, you know, anomalies that Babe Ruth put up in, in his career. Like, you love baseball history. It feels like you genuinely love everything about this sport. So, you know, you're 32 years old right now. Do you see a world where you're not involved with baseball until you're done working? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I, uh, I, I for sure want to stay in the game I think right now you know coming up early that I always said I wanted to be in the front office I always said I wanted to be a GM um, the longer that I stayed on the field the longer I really think I want to be a manager the longer I am around guys the more I'm in the clubhouse like I really think I can make a difference uh, off the field as well so like that's something that excites me too like I'm definitely excited for the next aspect whenever that comes um but yeah, I think I want to make a push for major league manager whenever that is. I don't know, you know, like yeah. hopefully, I, like I said, hopefully I can play till I'm freaking 50 and we talk about this in 18 years, you know, but yeah. um, no, I don't know. But yeah, I, I am definitely um, more of a lifer than most. There's no question. I hear you, man. I, I love to hear that. And I think, you know, we're, we're seeing the the approach, I think, to, to what kind of managers are being hired uh, change a little bit. Younger guys are, are starting to get more of a chance and, um, I, I think that's something that is really interesting across the game. But of course, Jack's favorite team, the Chicago White Sox, maybe not adopting that strategy quite as much. Um, but how do you feel about the, the impact that a manager can have on a team? Because this is something that, you know, I, I, it's one of my favorite topics to discuss with, with Jeff Conine, who's our advisor at Just Baseball. And we have a, a podcast we do every once in a while with him. And, you know, I always reference that 2003 season where the Marlins were horrible. Uh, they fire their manager. Jack McKeon takes over and the rest is history. Uh, but, but he said, and Jeff Conine always maintains this is that Jack McKeon didn't, you know, wave a magical wand. Really what he did was he just allowed the players to play and they felt comfortable. Is that the biggest job of a manager and how much control do you think a manager has over, you know, the success of a team? Because we're always on here. We have to talk about it after a guy gets fired and we always have to, to debate whether it was justified or not and whatever it is. And, and I always say, we don't really know what's going on behind closed doors, but I do think that managers tend to get scapegoated uh, a little bit and maybe get a little bit too much credit uh, sometimes when a team just is clicking as well. Uh, no doubt. I've, I've said that a lot that I think that they get too much blame and, and too much love uh, either way, but at the same point, like that is kind of their job. They're the ones who mm -hmm. are supposed to get blamed and are supposed to get loved when the team wins. Um, I think exactly what you said is, is totally it is that the main job of the manager to me is to make sure the clubhouse is running right. Um, for the most part, it's now with the DH, I think the manager's role went down a little bit again, obviously, uh, but the bullpen, I mean, I think the bullpen usage um, is clearly, um, however you want to look at it, like, um, I think surrounding yourself with the, with the right people is just as important as making the right moves. So like the information that you're getting that is helping you has to be right also. So I don't think it's all, always their fault in making the pitching change. It could just be the information is not the right information. Um, so I think that there's multiple things there, but no doubt, I think the most important thing is, um, is just making sure that the players are happy and that everything that they need is taken care of so they can go out on the field and do one thing. That's fine. Yeah. Hey, before we wrap, I've got a game for you. 
I've got oh. your baseball reference page up here. Oh. Um, I'm going to walk you through every year, and I want you to tell me every team you played for that year. Uh, okay. Oh, that'll, this will be easy. Yeah, this will be easy? All right, 2011. It should be. Should be. should be easy. 2011, I played for the AZL Cubs only. Yep. Um, well, you had a couple of non-professional stops in 2011. What were those? Oh, 2011, Moorhead State and uh, Brewster. Yep. There uh, we go. Then I went. Then I, so I'll just go down the list, and you tell me when I'm when I'm off. Moorhead State, Brewster, 2012, or and then and then uh, Arizona. 2012 yep. would have been Peoria into Daytona. 2013 yep. would have been um, was 2013. Daytona into Tennessee 2014 was the only time I was somewhere for the it was the first time I was somewhere for the whole year I was in Tennessee 15 I went Iowa Tennessee Iowa Tennessee Iowa 16 I went Tennessee Iowa hold on what'd you do between 2015 and 16 uh DR I played for La Romana yeah and then and then in 16 I uh played in Started in double A, so I started in Tennessee, went to Iowa, had a stop in Eugene um, in 2016. And stole a base. And stole, wow, yeah, see, 2016, big year. And the Cubs <laughs> won the World Series. The last time I stole a base, the Cubs won the World Series. <laughs> um, and then 2017, 2018, 2019, Iowa, Chicago, 2020, Alt 2021, uh, Alt Norfolk, Indy, 2022, Indy. That was impressive. Don't forget about the two games in Pittsburgh last year, too. Oh, yeah. Sprinkle those in. A couple hits off of Ranger Suarez, who had a 1-6. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, someone's got to do it. I got one last question, too, because you talk about, you know, uh, really helping your team win a ball game, and that's your goal, especially at the big league level. A really good way to do that is hitting a grand slam. And uh, you did that off of Michael Waka yeah. uh, with the Cubs there. How, how, could you just like take us through to wrap it up? Like that's got to be the, the the best moment ever, right? Like, can you just walk us through what that was like? You had a grand slam uh, off of an established big leaguer to score Javi Baez and <laughs> Kyle Schwarber uh, and also David Bodie. Like that's as cool as it gets. Uh, so I'm married with a son. So we'll go. We'll Baseball go wise. Baseball. We'll go birth. We'll go birth wedding grand slam. Um, but the grand slam <laughs> was really cool. Although I blacked out. So yeah. like the last thing I remember is like watching Schwarber getting intentionally walked and like thinking in my head, like I'm going to hit here, like with the bases loaded in a sold out Wrigley field in the middle of the day, this is incredible. Um, and I knew that they were pinch hitting for, um, for you if I didn't get a hit. And so, uh, actually, if I didn't hit a grand slam, if I didn't hit a grand slam, Darvish was not going to be able to go back out. So that was, but uh, so I, all I remember, and the next thing I remember after like seeing, walking to the plate is talking about the next three hitters, uh, in the dugout while I'm putting my shin guards on. I don't remember the middle. I don't remember anything else. Dude, come on. How many times have you watched the replay of that? (laughs) I've watched the John boy one one a few times i think it's pretty funny um but no i mean i don't watch a ton Uh, i've watched my i've watched my i've watched my eye staring video probably more than i've seen the uh grand slam video yeah 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 quick backstory before we wrap there with with the staring video you were in iowa right yeah 2017 um 
the year before 2016, Chris DeGrone, who's now on the major league staff with the Mariners, uh, just did some funny stuff whenever it was the camera was on him. And so I kind of took that from him and stared into cameras and they did a compilation. And at the end of the year, they, they posted it. Um, that they told me, was it last year? I think she said it was still MILBs, like one of or the top most interactive posts of all time. <laughs> they That's get a, she, she told me that in 2020, she was getting, uh, they were getting, um, they were still getting email, like emails or messages on Facebook about it, like once a month. That's awesome. Wow. That's cool. A That's showman, fun. Taylor Davis. Hey, Taylor, thank you so much for joining us, man. Thank you. So two catchers and really a, a matter of like a week and a half, Peter. And uh, I feel like we're just smarter now through just oh, osmosis. Yeah. More catchers you can talk to, the smarter you will become in, in, in baseball. I don't think people realize how much smarter catchers are than like everybody else. And even your your conversation with Ryan Lavarnaway, how much did you just kind of realize how they see the game through just a different lens? They They are the – the spectator is the wrong word to call them, but they see the whole field. I mean, if you think about it, like a shortstop is facing the captain, home really carrying the batter. They see the whole field. They see the game evolve like throughout nine innings. I there's so much fun to talk to. They're so insightful, both of them, Davis and Lavarnway. And it's funny, you know, Davis is not as hasn't been around the block like Lavarnway has. I mean, Lavarnway's 34 years old as well. He's been in the he's been in big leagues now for over a decade and it's just so cool to see their insight as as they grow too I, I love that interview was there like something that stood out to you between like what what you've heard from now like sitting down with with catchers so there was one thing I talked to Anthony Mulrine uh double a with the LA Angels and I asked him about the one leg um you know like the one leg thing where these guys kind of get down they stick the one leg out so that they can kind of frame a little bit better. And it's been shown that it's resulting in a lot more pass balls. And they said that they're willing and also makes it easier to steal bases. They're willing. The teams are willing to give up 90 feet for all of the strikes that they're going to presumably steal. And there's just so many of those little nuances that catchers are dealing with day to day that I don't think anybody realizes. Was there one thing that like really stood out to you in your LaVarnaway conversation? Um, because I could probably talk about one thing that stood out with, with Davis, just of like a nuance to catching. Absolutely. So there was two things. First, how important framing is for a catcher and that a lot of teams evaluate it like this. If you can steal three strikes in a game, you know, making a ball a strike, three of them, that's basically an RBI. Whoa. Like as much as an RBI, as much as a run scored, which I thought to myself, what? That's how much they value the framing. But then on the other side, because that's something you can track. And also I asked LaVarnway, you know, because all these different clubs, they use all these different stats in order to evaluate their catchers behind the plate. But he said that strikes above average on baseball savant is the best way to evaluate the frame, or at least for public data that we have. Yeah. But beyond the data, because not everything is numbers at the end of the day, and those stats aren't perfect either. But he talked about how important commanding the rotation is the relationship that you have with the pitcher, you know, calling the game that is so as important as any other aspect in catching really, really important. That's why we see a lot of these guys. Like, for example, they don't really you know, hit that been, well. <laughs> we've been clamoring. We've been clamoring for the guardians, you know, to get a new catcher, right? Like go get a Wilson Contreras, go get a Sean Murphy. And Ryan LaVarnway is just raving about Austin Hedges. Yeah. Raving. And, 
you know, isn't it interesting that all the Guardians can pitch? Yeah. Don't you think Austin Hedges probably has something to do with it? Uh-huh. Martin Maldonado in Houston. Even the bullpen looks amazing now in every single one of their starters. Also, Lance McCullers is coming back soon. We got to talk about the Astros. They are so fucking good. It's yeah, they're so good. And, and But again, so it's like, it's one of those things where you, you look at the catching situation and I think we're always looking at the numbers and we're always like, oh man, like, don't they, don't they know there's better options out there? Yes. The GM is aware that there are better offensive yes. options out there. Um, and, and like we catch ourselves in this and, and it's just, again, it really solidifies the fact that like offense is such is such a secondary, like it, it might even be a tertiary. Like it's all of the nuances of catching come first. And then even like calling games and commanding a pitching staff. It was funny, Taylor Davis, like the thing that just the trend, the theme of like the entire episode just kept, kept coming up was, any way I can help my team win. Like, sure, if I run into a baseball, I run into a baseball. But, I mean, there's so many different ways as a catcher that I can help my team win that I'm focused on all of those things. And it sounds cliche, but for catchers, it's really the the description of the job. And um, it wasn't something I really came to appreciate until I really sat down with a catcher. And it feels like it seems like you're kind of in the same boat. It was phenomenal. Also, last thing to end the pod, you know the Dodgers have the best record in baseball now. <laughs> You're not bleaching your hair. No, I'm I'm definitely not going to bleach my hair because they're going to win over 97 games, which is going to like, thank God I would look like a, like a backstreet boy. I would not look good. That is not a look that I was looking forward to. It looks like they're going to hit it, which is thankfully, and I have an enormous view. I mean, it's the biggest future I put. I said it on the podcast. It was the biggest future I put on anything. Dodgers over win total. I thought they were the best team I like I've ever seen on <laughs> yeah, paper they're up there and they're performing like and it. they're going to add. The Yankees, you know, they were so far and away ahead of everybody. And now the Dodgers have really caught steam, too. And the Yankees have been struggling a little bit against the Orioles. You know, they they won the series and they did well, but it didn't look like that great of a series for Man, them. The O's are kind of good. The O's are kind of good. And the Yankees, they just lost Michael King, who fractured his elbow. Unfortunately, it's a big blow to the bullpen. Chapman, again, almost blew it for the Yankees. I mean, he gives me nightmares. I mean, I just don't want him in close games for the Yankees. I really do not want that. I, I kind of want to talk about for the next episode to kind of tease into it as we close this one out is, is you know, are, are, are the Astros a team to beat? You know, and, and, and really be. just kind of mapping out what things look like because they already look like the team to beat. They are going to get McCullers back and – a team like the Dodgers, though, still can go out and make a big trade. The Astros can't as much. Like, what is this all going to look like after the deadline? And how is that going to change how we feel about some of these teams? Can any of these teams make a move and put themselves over the Astros? Like, those are the conversations I'm excited to have because now we have a week moving forward until we are at MLB's trade deadline. We're going to be covering that at JustBaseball.com like crazy. We'll be covering it on the podcast like crazy. We'll be covering it every single way we possibly can at Just Baseball, and I'm really excited to kind of break that down with you over the next week or so with all of our episodes. But any final thoughts, Peter? No final thoughts for me. Um, like I said, the the link to the chalkboard is in our episode description as well as our link to prize picks. If you want to download that, you get a full deposit match on prize picks as well. Um, and also a free $10 gift card to whatnot in our episode description as well. Yep. If you like card collecting, click that link in our episode description, free 10 bucks. Why not free money? That's what I always say. It's like, it takes four clicks. You can make 10 bucks in two seconds. Yeah. Um, if you just click the link in our episode description, that's all I got for you today. I'm just the one Soto 
it's the biggest story in sports right now. And, and at the end of the day, I feel like it's, it's going to be a big roller coaster of emotions when nothing happens, <laughs> when like, nothing happens, and he, and he just sides with the nationals, which would be still really cool. If he does sign, I think that'd be good for baseball, but a trade would also be great for content. So I'm here for all of that. And obviously, you know where to come for all of that content. So that'll do it for this episode. And with that, thanks everybody. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.